Greetings, and welcome back to the Modernist Revival Podcast. Today's date is Monday, June 11th, 2022. The time is approximately 7 p.m. New York time, and today I'm going to be talking about Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde is one of the most important figures of modernism on a global scale, particularly when considering literary modernism's role in the sexual revolution, which is the subject of this season of the Modernist Revival podcast. Oscar Wilde is the author of a modernist aesthetic, uh, which is both present in his poetic and literary works and which supersedes them in the image that Wilde strategically cultivated for himself throughout his life and his career. That of the romantic poet, the dandy asset, um, living a life devoted to decadence and desire, um, the satisfaction of sensual pleasures. And uh, this way of living, mode of being, um, goes hand in hand with a kind of sadomasochistic uh, simultaneity of pleasure and pain. And so Wilde has been a controversial historical figure for this reason. Um, Oscar Wilde is part of a group of modernists, which includes the Marquis de Sade and Leopold von Sacher Massoc, uh, who emphasized the sensual and the base and the decadent in their writings and in their personal lives, often to extremes and often in ways that left them persecuted and imprisoned for obscenity charges, including but not limited to sodomy and the indulgence of homosexuality. Homosexuality has been considered the hidden subject of the 19th century the love that shall not speak its name, according to Wilde. And this is a love particularly between two men. Um, and it's one which, in the way that it's typically explored in modernist literature, is one that must always exist in a space of unspoken desire that is enacted through kinship, but that can never be fully realized and so must remain in the realm of desire. Um, desire being a wanting but not being able to have. One can't desire something that one has been able to achieve because in that moment of achieving, there's no space left for the longing of desire. And then this is contrasted with the heterosexual relationship between men and women, and particularly sexual desire outside of marriage, um, which modernist literature and particularly authors who explore sensuality and sexuality helps to expose the toxicity of. A good example of this can be found in Oscar Wilde's novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. When the novel begins, we have an initial exploration of a love between artist and painter Basil Halward and his young muse and subject, Dorian Gray. 
as a pure, genuine love based around mutual admiration and platonic affection, um, this connection that these two men share is then contrasted to the superficial, petty, and lustful attachment that we see between Dorian and the object of his affection, actress Sybil Vane. So for this episode, I've selected one of Oscar Wilde's poems and a few key passages from The Picture of Dorian Gray. I don't have enough space in the podcast episode to read the entire novel, but hopefully you get a taste of it um, and can go out and either uh, read the book, listen to an audiobook, or there's also some lovely film adaptations out there that you might be able to watch if watching movies is more your thing. Um, so my plan is to tease out the elements of Wilde's aesthetic, which I've just briefly summarized as one, emphasizing the sensual, two, embracing decadence, and three, approaching a theory of desire that is also a critique of heteronormative love. So I'll sort of tease those elements out gradually as I'm reading through the passages I've selected, and then I'm going to move into a kind of theoretical and thematic, larger scale uh, discussion of what we're seeing in Wilde's writing. So to begin, the poem, Elas. And this is a poem about embracing the decadence of life, but it is just as much a lamentation of life once the decadent and indulgent poet speaker is past his prime, his or her prime. To drift with every passion till my soul is a stringed lute on which all winds can play. Is it for this that I have given away mine ancient wisdom and austere control? Methinks my life is a twice-written scroll scrawled over on some boyish holiday with idle songs for pipe and virilay, which do but mar the secret of the whole. Surely there was a time I might have trod the sunlit heights and from life's dissonance struck one clear chord to reach the ears of God. Is that time dead? Lo, with a little rod I did but touch the honey of romance. And must I lose a soul's inheritance? So um, the poem opens and we have a speaker that is initially in the opening two lines presented as spirited and intuitive, but in that uh, free-spiritedness, somehow also imprisoned by their emotions, passions, and sensuous impulses, right? Looking again at those opening three lines, to drift with every passion till my soul is a stringed lute on which all winds can play, right? We have this kind of languid, flexible, will-of-the-wisp type of, uh, Speaker, And then is it for this that I have given away mine ancient wisdom and austere control? 
we have a lamentation of a misspent youth. In some ways, this poem gives a good poetic overview of the major sentiments of the picture of Dorian Gray, particularly the novel's young protagonist um, and his constant anxiety over the loss of his youth and beauty. Albeit the social critique present in Dorian Gray is much more vast and nuanced than the poem um, because there's more space to explore certain themes in the, the novel with, through the different characters present um, who you'll hear the voices of as I'm reading certain passages. In Alas, the poem, the emphasis is on nostalgia and regret where Dorian Gray emphasizes um, first through the first third of the novel, a kind of living in the present in order to experience decadence fully and also a very satirical um, social critique of certain uh, systems of love and loving, I would say. And then the novel Dorian Gray shifts to become predominantly focused on Dorian Gray's anxiety around aging and getting older in the second two-thirds of the book, um, which I won't be talking about in this episode, so I'm going to uh, not mention. But if you're curious, uh, I do encourage you to read the novel. So to begin, I'm going to read the opening 10 or so pages of um, the picture of Dorian Gray. And in these opening pages, we start to get the initial glimpses of Oscar Wilde's thoughts on decadence and its role, the very important role it plays uh, indeed in the production of art. Um, for Wilde's artistic philosophy, this is very important. Um, also of concern for Wilde here um, in the ontology of uh, Dorian Gray, the novel, is the fleeting nature of things like youth, beauty, and love, and how temporary pleasures are both um, simultaneously decadent and pleasurable and destructive, um, and yet also somehow paradoxically essential to the enjoyment of life and the experience of youth before aging. Um, so it opens with a preface that is an initial theory of uh, Wilde's views on art. The artist is the creator of beautiful things. To reveal art and conceal the artist is art's aim. The critic is he who can translate into another manner or a new material his impression of beautiful things. The highest as the lowest form of criticism is a mode of autobiography. Those who find ugly meanings in beautiful things are corrupt without being charming. This is a fault. Those who find beautiful meanings in beautiful things are the cultivated. For these, there is hope. 
they are the elect to whom, to whom beautiful things mean only beauty. There is no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well-written or badly written, that is all. The 19th century dislike of realism is the rage of Caliban seeing his own face in a glass. The 19th century dislike of romanticism is the rage of Caliban not seeing his own face in a glass. The moral life of man forms part of the subject matter of the artist, but the morality of art consists in the perfect use of an imperfect medium. No artist desires to prove anything. Even things that are true can be proved. No artist has ethical sympathies. An ethical sympathy in an artist is an unpardonable mannerism of style. No artist is ever morbid. The artist can, can express everything. Thought and language are to the artist instruments of an art. Vice and virtue are to the artist materials for an art. From the point of view of form, the type of all the arts is the art of the musician. From the point of view of feeling, the actor's craft is the type. All art is at once surface and symbol. Those who go beneath the surface do so at their peril. Those who read the symbol do so at their peril. It is the spectator and not life that art really mirrors. Diversity of opinion about a work of art shows the work is new, complex, and vital. When critics disagree, the artist is in accord with himself. We can forgive a man for making a useful thing as long as he does not admire it. The only excuse for making a useless thing is that one admires it intensely. All art is quite useless. So with that opening, we enter into a world of Basil Halward and Sir Henry, Lord Henry Wotton, sorry, pardon me. And the men discuss a beautiful painting that Basil Halward has done, a portrait of a young man named Dorian Gray, who has become a muse of sorts to Basil Halward, um, who has a boyish loving crush on him, we shall say. The studio was filled with the rich odor of roses, and when the light summer wind stirred amidst the trees of the garden, there came through the open door the heavy scent of the lilac, or the more delicate perfume of the pink flowering thorn. From the corner of the divan, the Persian saddlebags on which he was lying, smoking, as was his custom, innumerable cigarettes, Lord Henry Wotton could just catch the glimpse of the honey-sweet and honey-colored blossoms of a laburnum whose tremulous branches seemed hardly able to bear the burden of a beauty so flame-like as theirs, and now and then the fantastic shadows of birds in flight flitted across the long tussor silk curtains that were stretched in front of the huge window 
producing a kind of momentary Japanese effect and making him think of those pallid, jade-faced painters of Tokyo who, through the medium of an art that is necessarily immobile, seek to convey the sense of swiftness and motion. The sullen murmur of the bees shouldering their way through the long unmown grass or circling with monotonous insistence round the, the dusty gilt horns of the straggling woodbine seemed to make the stillness more oppressive. The dim roar of London was like the burden note of a distant organ. In the center of the room, clamped to an upright easel, stood the full-length portrait of a young man of extraordinary personal beauty, and in front of it, some little distance away, was sitting the artist himself, Basil Halward, whose sudden disappearance some years ago caused, at the time, such public excitement and gave rise to so many strange conjectures. As the painter looked at the gracious and comely form he had so skillfully mirrored in his art, a smile of pleasure passed across his face and seemed about to linger there. But he suddenly started up and, closing his eyes, placed his fingers upon the lids as though he sought to imprison within his brain some curious dream from which he feared he might awake. It is your best work, Basil, the best thing you have ever done, said Lord Henry languidly. You must certainly send it next year to the Grosvenor. The academy is too large and too vulgar. Whenever I have gone there, there have been either so many people that I have not been able to see the pictures, which was dreadful, or so many pictures that I have not been able to see the people, which was worse. The Grosvenor is really the only place. I don't think I shall send it anywhere, he answered, tossing his head back in that odd way that used to make his friends laugh at him at Oxford. No, I won't send it anywhere. Lord Henry elevated his eyebrows and looked at him in amazement through the thin blue wreaths of the smoke that curled up in such fanciful whirls from his heavy, opium-tainted cigarette. Not send it anywhere, my dear fellow, why? Have you any reason? What odd chaps you painters are, you do anything in the world to gain a reputation. As soon as you have one, you seem to want to throw it away. It is silly of you, for there is only one thing in the world worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. A portrait like this would set you far above all the young men in England and make the old men quite jealous if old men are ever capable of any emotion. I know you will laugh at me, he replied, but I really can't exhibit it. I have put too much of myself into it. Lord Henry stretched himself out on the divan and laughed. Yes, I knew you would, but it is quite true all the same. Too much of yourself in it, Upon my word, Basil, I didn't know you were so vain. And I really can't see any resemblance between you with your rugged, strong face and your coal-black hair and this young Adonis who looks as if he was made out of ivory and rose leaves. 
Why, my dear Basil, he is a narcissus, and you, well, of course, you have an intellectual expression and all that. But beauty, real beauty, ends where an intellectual expression begins. Intellect is in itself a mode of exaggeration and destroys the harmony of any face. The moment one sits down to think, one becomes all nose or all forehead or something horrid. Look at the successful men in any of the learned professions, how perfectly hideous they are, except, of course, in the church. But then in the church, they don't think. A bishop keeps on saying at the age of 80 what he was told to say when he was a boy of 18, and as a natural consequence, he always looks absolutely delightful. Your mysterious young friend, whose name you have never told me, but whose picture really fascinates me, never thinks. I feel quite sure of that. He is some brainless, beautiful creature who should always be here in winter when we have no flowers to look at, and always here in summer when we want something to chill our intelligence. Don't flatter yourself, Basil. You are not in the least like him. You don't understand me, Harry, answered the artist. Of course I am not like him. I know that perfectly well. Indeed, I should be sorry to look like him. You shrug your shoulders. I am telling you the truth. There is a fatality about all physical and intellectual distinction, the sort of fatality that seems to dog through history the faltering steps of kings. It is better not to be different from one's fellows. The ugly and the stupid have the best of it in this world. They can sit at their ease and gape at the play. If they know nothing of victory, they are at least spared the knowledge of defeat. They live as well as we all should live, undisturbed, indifferent, and without disquiet. They neither bring ruin upon others nor ever receive it from alien hands. Your rank and wealth, Harry, my brains, such as they are, my art, whatever it may be worth, Dorian Gray's good looks, we shall all suffer for what the gods have given us, suffer terribly. Dorian Gray, is that his name? asked Lord Henry, walking across the studio, towards Basil Hallward. Yes, that is his name. I didn't intend to tell it to you, but why not? Oh, I can't explain it. When I like people immensely, I never tell their names to anyone. It is like surrendering a part of them. I have grown to love secrecy. It seems to be the one thing that can make modern life mysterious or marvelous to us. The commonest thing is delightful if one only hides it. When I leave town now, I never tell people where I am going. If I did, I would lose all my pleasure. It is a silly habit, I dare say. But somehow it seems to bring a great deal of romance into one's life. I suppose you think me awfully foolish about it. Not at all, answered Lord Henry. Not at all, my dear Basil. You seem to forget that I am married, and the one charm of marriage is that it makes a life of deception absolutely necessary for both parties. I never know where my wife is, and my wife never knows what I am doing. When we meet, and we do meet occasionally, when we dine out together or go down to the Dukes, we tell each other the most absurd stories with the most serious faces. My wife is very good at it, much better, in fact, than I am. She never gets confused over her dates, and I always do. But when she does find me out, she makes no row at all. I sometimes wish she would, but she merely laughs at me.
I hate the way you talk about your married life, Harry, said Basil Hallward, strolling towards the door that led into the garden. I believe that you are really a very good husband, but that you are thoroughly ashamed of your own virtues. You are an extraordinary fellow. You never say a moral thing, and you never do a wrong thing. Your cynicism is simply a pose. Being natural is simply a pose and the most irritating pose I know, cried Lord Henry laughing, and the two young men went out into the garden together and ensconced themselves on a long bamboo seat that stood in the shade of a tall laurel bush. The sunlight slipped over the polished leaves. In the grass, white daisies were tremulous. After a pause, Lord Henry pulled out his watch. I am afraid I must be going, Basil, he murmured. And before I go, I insist on your answering a question I put to you some time ago. What is that? said the painter, keeping his eyes fixed on the ground. You know quite well. I do not, Harry. Well, I will tell you what it is. I want you to explain to me why you won't exhibit Dorian Gray's picture. I want the real reason. I told you the real reason. No, you did not. You said it was because there was too much of yourself in it. Now that is childish. Harry, said Basil Halward, looking him straight in the face, every portrait that is painted with feeling is a portrait of the artist, not of the sitter. The sitter is merely the accident, the occasion. It is not he who is revealed by the painter. It is rather the painter who, on the colored canvas, reveals himself. The reason I will not exhibit this picture is that I am afraid that I have shown in it the secret of my own soul. Lord Henry laughed. And what is that, he asked. I will tell you, said Hallward, but an expression of perplexity came over his face. I am all expectation, Basil, continued his, his companion, glancing at him. Oh, there is really very little to tell, Harry, answered the painter, and I am afraid you will hardly understand it. Perhaps you will hardly believe it. Lord Henry smiled and, leaning down, plucked a pink-petaled daisy from the grass and examined it. I am quite sure I shall understand it, he replied, gazing intently at the little golden white feathered disc. And as for believing things, I can believe anything provided that it is quite incredible. The wind shook some blossoms from the trees and the heavy lilac blooms with their clustering stars moved to and fro in the languid air. A grasshopper began to cheer up by the wall and like a blue thread, a long thin dragonfly floated past on its brown gauze wings. Lord Henry felt as if he could hear Basil Hallward's heart beating and wondered what was coming. The story is simply this, said the painter after some time. Two months ago, I went to a crush at Lady Brandon's. You know, we poor artists have to show ourselves in society from time to time just to remind the public that we are not savages. With an evening coat and a white tie, as you told me once, anybody, even a stockbroker, can gain a reputation for being civilized. Well, after I had been in the room about ten minutes talking to huge overdressed dowagers 
and tedious academicians, I suddenly became conscious that someone was looking at me. I turned halfway round and saw Dorian Gray for the first time. When our eyes met, I felt that I was growing pale. A curious sensation of terror came over me. I knew that I had come face to face with someone whose mere personality was so fascinating that if I allowed it to do so, I would absorb my whole nature, my whole soul, my very art itself. I did not want any external influence in my life. You know yourself, Harry, how independent I am by nature. I have always been my own master, had at least always been so till I met Dorian Gray. Then, but I don't know how to explain it to you, something seemed to tell me that I was on the verge of a terrible crisis in my life. I had a strange feeling that fate had in store for me exquisite joys and exquisite sorrows. I grew afraid and turned to quit the room. It was not conscience that made me do it. It was a sort of cowardice. I take no credit to myself for trying to escape. Conscience and cowardice are really the same things, Basil. Conscience is the trade name of the firm, that is all. I don't believe that, Harry, and I don't believe you do either. However, whatever was my motive, and it may have been pride, for I used to be very proud, I certainly struggled to the door. There, of course, I stumbled against Lady Brandon. You are not going to run away so soon, Mr. Hallward, she screamed out. You know her curiously shrill voice. Yes, she is a peacock in everything but beauty, said Lord Henry, pulling the daisy to bits with his long, nervous fingers. I could not get rid of her. She brought me up to the royalties and people with stars and garters and elderly ladies with gigantic tiaras and parrot noses. She spoke of me as her dearest friend. I had only met her once before, but she took it into her head to lionize me. I believe some picture of mine had made a great success at the time, at least had been chattered about in the penny newspapers, which is the 19th century standard of immorality. Suddenly I found myself face to face with the young man whose personality had so strangely stirred me. We were quite close, almost touching. Our eyes met again. It was reckless of me, but I asked Lady Brandon to introduce me to him. Perhaps it was not so reckless after all. It was simply inevitable. We would have spoken to each other without any introduction. I am sure of that. Dorian told me afterwards he too felt that we were destined to know each other. And how did Lady Brandon describe this wonderful young man, asked his companion. I know she goes in for giving a rapid pressy of all her guests. I remember her bringing me up to a truculent and red-faced old gentleman covered all over with orders and ribbons and hissing into my ear in a tragic whisper which much must have been perfectly audible to everyone in the room, the most astounding details. I simply fled. I like to find out people for myself, but Lady Brandon treats her guests exactly as an auctioneer treats his goods. She either explains them entirely away or tells one everything about them except what one wants to know. Poor Lady Brandon, you are hard on her, Harry, said Halward listlessly. My dear fellow, she tried to found a salon and only succeeded in opening a restaurant. How could I admire her? But tell me, what did she say about Mr. Dorian Gray? Oh, something like, charming boy, poor dear mother, and I absolutely inseparable, quite forget what he does, afraid he doesn't do anything, oh yes, plays the piano, or is it the violin? Dear Mr. Gray. 
neither of us could help laughing and we became friends at once. Laughter is not at all a bad beginning for a friendship and it is far the best ending for one, said the young lord, plucking another daisy. Howard shook his head. You don't understand what friendship is, Harry, he murmured, or what enmity is for that matter. You like everyone, that is to say, you are indifferent to everyone. How horribly unjust of you, cried Lord Henry, tilting his hat back and looking up at the little clouds that, like raveled skeins of glossy white silk, were drifting across the hollowed, hollowed turquoise of the summer sky. Yes, horribly unjust of you, I make a great difference between people. I choose my friends for their good looks, my acquaintances for their good characters, and my enemies for their good intellects. A man cannot be too careful in the choice of his enemies. I have not got one who is a fool. They are all men of some intellectual power, and consequently, they all appreciate me. Is that very vain of me? I think it is rather vain. I should think it was, Harry, but according to your category, I must be merely an acquaintance. My dear old Basil, you are much more than, acquaint than an acquaintance, and much less than a friend. A sort of brother, I suppose. Oh, brothers, I don't care for brothers. My elder brother won't die, and my younger brother seems never to do anything else. Harry, exclaimed Hallward, frowning. My dear fellow, I am not quite serious, but I can't help detesting my relations. I suppose it comes from the fact that none of us can stand other people having the same faults as ourselves. I quite sympathize with the rage of the English democracy against what they call the vices of the upper orders. The masses feel that drunkenness, stupidity, and immor immorality should be their own special property, and that if any one of us makes an ass of himself, he is poaching on their preserves. When poor Southwark got into divorce court, their indignation was quite magnificent, and yet I don't suppose that 10% of the proletariat live correctly. I don't agree with a single word that you have said, and what is more, Harry, I feel sure that you don't either. Lord Henry stroked his pointed brown beard and tapped the toe of his patent leather boot with a tasseled ebony cane. How English you are, Basil. That is the second time you have made the observation. If one puts forward an idea to a true Englishman, always a rash thing to do, he never dreams of considering whether the idea is right or wrong. The only thing he considers of any importance is whether one believes it oneself. Now, the value of an idea has nothing whatsoever to do with the sincerity of the man who expresses it. Indeed, the probabilities are that the more insincere the man is, the more purely intellectual will the idea be, as in that case, it will not be colored by either his wants, his desires, or his prejudices. However, I don't propose to discuss politics, sociology, or metaphysics with you. I like persons better than principles, and I like persons with no principles better than anything else in the world. Tell me more about Mr. Dorian Gray. How often do you see him? Every day. I couldn't be happy if I didn't see him every day. He is absolutely necessary to me. How extraordinary. I thought you would never care for anything but your art. He is all my art to me now, said the painter gravely. I sometimes think, Harry, that there are only two eras of any importance in the world's history. The first is the appearance of a new medium for art, 
and the second is the appearance of a new personality for art also. What the invention of oil painting was to the Venetians, the face of Antonius was to late Greek sculpture, and the face of Dorian Gray someday will be to me. It is not merely that I paint from him, draw from him, sketch from him, of course I have done all of that, but he is much more to me than a model or a sitter. I won't tell you that I am dissatisfied with what I have done of him or that his beauty is such that art cannot express it. There is nothing that art cannot express, and I know that the work I have done since I met Dorian Gray is good work, is the best work of my life, but in some curious way, I wonder will you understand me, his personality has suggested to me an entirely new manner in art, an entirely new mode of style. I see things differently, I think of them differently. I can now recreate life in a way that was hidden from me before, a dream of form in days of thought. Who is it, who says that, I forget, but it is what Dorian Gray has been to me. The merely visible presence of this lad, for he seems to me little more than a lad, though he is really over 20. His merely visible presence, ah, I wonder, can you realize all that means? Unconsciously, he defines for me the lines of a fresh school, a school that is to have in it all the passion of the romantic spirit, all the perfection of the spirit that is Greek, the harmony of soul and body, how much that is, we in our madness have separated the two and have invented a realism that is vulgar, an ideality that is void. Harry, if you only knew what Dorian Gray is to me. You remember that landscape of mine for which Agnew offered me such a huge price, but which I would not part with? It is one of the best things I have ever done, and why is it so? Because while I was painting it, Dorian Gray sat beside me. Some subtle influence passed from him to me, and for the first time in my life, I saw in the plain woodland the wonder I had always looked for and always missed. Basil, this is extraordinary. I must see Dorian Gray. Hallward got up from his seat and walked up down the garden. After some time, he came back. Harry, he said, Dorian Gray is to me simply a motive in art. You might see nothing in him. I see everything in him. He is never more present in my work than when no image of him is there. He is a suggestion, as I have said, of a new manner. I find him in the curves of certain lines, in the loveliness and subtleties of certain colors, that is all. Then why won't you exhibit his portrait, asked Lord Henry. Because without intending it, I have put into it some expression of all this curious artistic idolatry of him, which, of course, I have never cared to speak to him. He knows nothing about it. He shall never know anything about it. But the world might guess it, and I will not bear my soul to their shallow prying eyes. My heart shall never be put under their microscope. There is too much of myself in the thing, Harry, too much of myself. Poets are not so scrupulous as you are. They know how useful passion is for publication. Nowadays, a broken heart will run to many editions. I hate them for it, cried Hallward. An artist should create beautiful things, but should put nothing of his own life into them. We live in an age when men treat art as if it were meant to be a form of autobiography. 
We have lost the abstract sense of beauty. Someday I will show the world what it is, and for that reason the world shall never see my portrait of Dorian Gray. So I'll stop there, but that gives a really good initial understanding of the project of Dorian Gray, at least initially, as one that explores concepts of decadence, desire, and passion in art, and also the role of the muse who presents a kind of unrequited desire um, or desired object that presents the artist with a new worldview, a view of a world that the artist seeks to depict through their art, through their explorations of beauty. And of course, throughout the scene, Lord Henry is relentlessly teasing Basil Halward for his affection of Dorian Gray, wanting to know the nature of their relationship the emphasis on Latin and Greek and classic culture is a, um, a very obvious reference to homosexual, homosexuality, homosexual love between typically an older male and a younger uh, boy. And so also Basil Howard saying that he sees uh, Dorian Gray as a lad is representative of this kind of gesture as well. So I mentioned earlier, homosexuality was known as the love that shall not speak its name. And so in this scene, we have uh, Basil Howard and Lord Henry Wotton talking around and approaching the subject of male-on-male -male desire, homosocial, homosocial ties, and um, hints at erotic and romantic attachment between these two men. Um, Lord Henry is picking up on that, um, and he himself uh, sort of outspokenly gestures towards his own um, indulgence in and explorations of um, homosexual love as he, he talks about the estranged relationship he has to his wife. Um, so this opening scene shows us a lot about uh, theories of art and also how theories of art intersect with theories of sexuality um, in the modernist period. And so Wilde is presenting a text that is serving a theoretical and a philosophical function just as it is a literary and artistic one in some ways. So I'm going to jump ahead to read chapter four next. And in this chapter, we get a lot of satirical social critique on interactions between men and women this time. So chapter one, we see homosocial connection. And here we're going to be taking a look at heteronormativity as Oscar Wilde satirically presents it, um, particularly the institution of marriage and its different though equally damaging effects on men and women. Um, and Wilde's satire in this chapter is incredibly tongue-in-cheek. Uh, we get a lot of sardonic wit and indeed much of what Lord Henry kind of satirizes about with respect to marriage 
continues to be relevant today um, in certain social critiques, I think, that are coming up, uh, re-emerging, um, particularly in American politics today, but certainly at issue on a global scale as well. Chapter four. One afternoon, a month later, Dorian Gray was reclining in a luxurious armchair in the little library of Lord Henry's house in Mayfair. It was, in its way, a very charming room with its high-paneled wainscoting of olive-stained oak, its cream-colored frieze and ceiling of raised plasterwork, and its brick-dust felt carpet strewn with silk long-fringed Persian rugs. On a tiny satin wood table stood a statuette by Clodion, and beside it lay a copy of Les Saintes Nouvelles, bound for Margaret of Valois by Clovis Eve, and powdered with the gilt daisies that Queen had selected for her device. Some large blue china jars and parrot tulips were ranged on the mantel shelf and through the small leaded panes of the window streamed the apricot colored light of a summer day in London. Lord Henry had not yet come in. He was always late on principle, his principle being that punctuality is the thief of time. So the lad was looking rather sulky as with listless fingers he turned over the pages of an elaborately illustrated edition of Manon Lescaut that he had found in one of the bookcases. The formal monotonous ticking of the Louis XIV clock annoyed him. Once or twice he thought of going away. At last he heard a step outside and the door opened. How late you are, Harry, he murmured. I am afraid it is not Harry, Mr. Gray, answered a shrill voice. He glanced quickly round and rose to his feet. I beg your pardon, I thought, you thought it was my husband. It is only his wife. You must let me introduce myself. I know you quite well by your photographs. I think my husband has got 17 of them. Not 17, Lady Henry. Well, 18 then, and I saw you with him the other night at the opera. She laughed nervously as she spoke and watched him with her vague forget-me-not eyes. She was a curious woman whose dresses always looked as if they had been designed in a rage and put on in a tempest. She was usually in love with somebody, and as her passion was never returned, she had kept all her illusions. She tried to look picturesque, but only succeeded in being untidy. Her name was Victoria, and she had a perfect mania for going to church. That was at Longren, Lady Henry, I think. Yes, it was, at dear Longren. I like Wagner's music better than anybody's. It is so loud that one can talk the whole time without other people hearing what one says. That is a great advantage, don't you think so, Mr. Gray? 
The same nervous staccato laugh broke from her thin lips and her fingers began to play with a long tortoise shell paper knife. Dorian smiled and shook his head. I am afraid I don't think so, Lady Henry. I never talk during music, at least during good music. If one hears bad music, it is one's duty to drown it in conversation. Ah, that is one of Harry's views, isn't it, Mr. Gray? I always hear Harry's views from his friends. It is the only way I get to know of them. But you, know, you must not think I don't like good music. I adore it, but I am afraid of it. It makes me too romantic. I have simply worshipped pianists, two at a time sometimes, Harry tells me. I don't know what it is about them. Perhaps it is that they are foreigners. They all are, ain't they? Even those that are born in England become foreigners after a time, don't they? It is so clever of them and such a compliment to art. Makes it quite cosmopolitan, doesn't it? You've never been to any of, the, any of my parties, have you, Mr. Gray? You must come. I can't afford orchids, but I spare no expense in foreigners. They make one's rooms look so picturesque. But here is Harry. Harry, I came in to look for you to ask you something. I forget what it was, and I found Mr. Gray here. We have had such a pleasant chat about music. We have quite the same ideas. No, I think our ideas are quite different, but he has been most pleasant. I am so glad I've seen him. I am charmed, my love, quite charmed, said Lord Henry, elevating his dark crescent-shaped eyebrows and looking at them both with an amused smile. So sorry I am late, Dorian. I went to look after a piece of old brocade in Wardour Street and had to bargain for hours for it. Nowadays, people know the price of everything and the value of nothing. I am afraid I must be going, exclaimed Lady Henry, breaking an awkward silence with her silly, sudden laugh. I have promised to drive with the Duchess. Goodbye, Mr. Gray. Goodbye, Harry. You are dining out, I suppose. So am I. Perhaps I shall see you at Lady Thornbury's. I dare say, my dear, said Lord Henry, shutting the door behind her as looking like a bird of paradise that had been out all night in the rain, she flitted out of the room, leaving a faint odor of frangipani. Then he lit a cigarette and flung himself down on the sofa. Never marry a woman with straw-colored hair, Dorian, he said after a few puffs. Why, Harry? Because they are so sentimental. But I like sentimental people. Never marry at all, Dorian. Men marry because they are tired. Women because they are curious. Both are disappointed. I don't think I am likely to marry, Harry. I am too much in love. That is one of your aphorisms. I am putting it into practice as I do anything that you say. Who are you in love with? Asked Lord Henry after a pause. With an actress, said Dorian Gray, blushing. Lord Henry shrugged his shoulders. That is a rather commonplace debut. You would not say so if you saw her, Harry. 
Who is she? Her name is Sybil Vane. Never heard of her. No one has. People will someday, however. She's a genius. My dear boy, no woman is a genius. Women are a decorative sex. They never have anything to say, but they say it charmingly. Women represent the triumph of matter over mind, just as men represent the triumph of mind over morals. Harry, how can you? My dear Dorian, it is quite true. I am analyzing women at present, so I ought to know. The subject is not so abstruse as I thought it was. I find that ultimately there are only two kinds of women, the plain and the colored. The plain women are very useful. If you want to gain a reputation for respectability, you have merely to take them down to supper. The other, however, they paint in order to try and look young. Our grandmothers painted in order to try to talk brilliantly. Rouge and Esprit used to go together. That is all over now. As long as a woman can look ten years younger than her own daughter, she is perfectly satisfied. As for conversation, there are only five women in London worth talking to, and two of these can't be admitted into decent society. However, tell me about your genius. How long have you known her? Ah, Harry, your views terrify me. Never mind that. How long have you known her? About three weeks. And where did you come across her? I will tell you, Harry, but you mustn't be unsympathetic about it. After all, it never would have happened if I had not met you. You filled me with a wild desire to know everything about life. For days after I met you, something seemed to throb in my veins. As I lounged in the park or strolled down Piccadilly, I used to look at everyone who passed me and wonder, with a mad curiosity, what sort of lives they led. Some of them fascinated me, others filled me with terror. There was an exquisite poison in the air. I had a passion for sensations. Well, one evening about seven o'clock, I determined to go out in search of some adventure. I felt that this gray, monstrous London of ours, with its myriads of people, its sordid sinners, and its splendid sins, as you once phrased it, must have something in store for me. I fancied a thousand things. The mere danger gave me a sense of delight. I remembered what you had said to me on that wonderful evening when we first dined together about the search for beauty being the real secret of life. I don't know what I expected, but I went out and wandered eastward, soon losing my way in a labyrinth of grimy streets and black, grassless squares. About half past eight, I passed by an absurd little theater with great flaring gas jets and gaudy playbills. A hideous person in the most amazing waistcoat I ever beheld in my life was standing at the entrance, smoking a vile cigar. He had greasy ringlets and an enormous diamond blazed in the center of a soiled shirt. Have a box, my lord, he said when he saw me, and he took off his hat with an air of gorgeous servility. There was something about him, Harry, that amused me. He was such a monster. You will laugh at me, I know, but I really went in and paid a whole guinea 
for the stage box. To the present day, I can't make out why I did so, and yet, if I hadn't, my dear Harry, if I hadn't, I should have missed the greatest romance of my life. I see you are laughing. It is horrid of you. I am not laughing, Dorian. At least, I am not laughing at you. But you should not say the greatest romance of your life. You should say the first romance of your life. You will always be loved, and you will always be in love with love. A grand passion is the privilege of people who have nothing to do. That is the one use of the idle classes of a country. Don't be afraid. There are exquisite things in store for you. This is merely the beginning. Do you think my nature so shallow, cried Dorian Gray angrily. No, I think your nature so deep. How do you mean? My dear boy, the people who love only once in their lives are really the shallow people. What they call their loyalty and their fidelity, I call either the lethargy of custom or their lack of imagination. Faithfulness is to the emotional life what consistency is to the life of the intellect, simply a confession of failure. Faithfulness. I must analyze it someday. The passion for property is in it. There are many things that we would throw away if we were not afraid that others might pick them up. But I don't want to interrupt you. Go on with your story. Well, I found myself seated in a horrid little private box with a vulgar drop scene staring me in the face. I looked out from behind the curtain and surveyed the house. It was a tawdry affair, all cupids and cornucopias like a third-rate wedding cake. The gallery and pit were fairly full, but the two rows of dingy stalls were quite empty, and there was hardly a person in what I suppose they called the dress circle. Women went about with oranges and ginger beer, and there was a terrible consumption of nuts going on. It must have been just like the palmy days of the British drama. Just like, I should fancy, and very depressing. I began to wonder what on earth I should do when I caught sight of the playbill. What do you think the play was, Harry? I should think the idiot boy or dumb but innocent. Our fathers used to like that sort of piece, I believe. The longer I live, Dorian, the more keenly I feel that whatever was good enough for our fathers is not good enough for us. In art as in politics, les grandes pierres ont toujours tort. This play was good enough for us, Harry. It was Romeo and Juliet. I must admit that I was rather annoyed at the idea of seeing Shakespeare done in such a wretched hole of a place. Still, I felt interested in a sort of way. At any rate, I determined to wait for the first act. There was a dreadful orchestra, presided over by a young Hebrew who sat at a cracked piano that nearly drove me away, but at last the drop scene was drawn up and the play began. Romeo was a stout, elderly gentleman with corked eyebrows, a husky tragedy voice, and a figure like a beer barrel. Mercutio was almost as bad. He was played by the low comedian who had introduced gags of his own, 
and was on most friendly terms with the pit. They were both as grotesque as the scenery, and that looked as if it had come out of a country booth. But Juliet, Harry, imagine a girl hardly 17 years of age with a little flower-like face, a small Greek head with plaited coils of dark brown hair, eyes that were violet wells of passion, lips that were like the petals of a rose. She was the loveliest thing I had ever seen in my life. You said to me once that pathos left you unmoved, but that beauty, mere beauty, could fill your eyes with tears. I tell you, Harry, I could hardly see this girl for the midst of tears that came across me and her voice. I never heard such a voice. It was very low at first with deep mellow notes that seemed to fall singly upon one's ear. Then it became a little louder and sounded like a flute or a distant hautbois in the garden scene. It had all the tremulous ecstasy that one hears just before dawn when nightingales are singing. There were moments later on when it had the wild passion of violins. You know how a voice can stir one. Your voice and the voice of Sybil Vane are two things that I shall never forget. When I close my eyes, I hear them, and each of them says something different. I don't know which to follow. Why should I not love her? Harry, I do love her. She is everything to me in life. Night after night, I go to see her play. One evening, she is Rosalind, and the next evening, she is Imogen. I've seen her die in the gloom of an Italian tomb, sucking the poison from her, her lover's lips. I have watched her wandering through the forest of Arden disguised as a pretty boy in hose and doublet and dainty cap. She has been mad and has come into the presence of a guilty king and given him rue to wear and bitter herbs to taste of. She has been innocent and the black hands of jealousy have crushed her reed-like throat. I have seen her in every age and in every costume. Ordinary women never appeal to one's imagination. They are limited to their century. No glamour ever transfigures them. One knows their minds as easily as one knows their bonnets. One can always find them. There is no mystery in any of them. They find them. They ride in the park in the morning and chatter at tea in the afternoon. They have their stereotyped smile and their fashionable manner. They are quite obvious, but an actress. How different an actress is, Harry. Why didn't you tell me that the only thing worth loving is an actress? Because I have loved so many of them, Dorian. Oh yes, horrid people with dyed hair and painted faces. Don't run down dyed hair and painted faces. There is an extraordinary charm in them sometimes said Lord Henry. I wish now I had not told you about Sybil Vane. You could not have helped telling me, Dorian, all through your life you will tell me everything you do. Yes, Harry, I believe that is true. I cannot help telling you things. You have a curious influence over me. If I ever did a crime, I would come and confess it to you. You would understand me. 
People like you, the willful sunbeams of life, don't commit crimes, Dorian, but I am much obliged for the compliment all the same. And now tell me, reach me the matches like a good boy, thanks. What are your actual relations with Sybil Vane? Dorian Gray leapt to his feet with flushed cheeks and burning eyes. Harry, Sybil Vane is sacred. It is only the sacred things that are worth touching, Dorian said Lord Henry with a strange touch of pathos in his voice. But why should you be annoyed? I suppose she will belong to you some day. When one is in love, one always begins by deceiving oneself, and one always ends by deceiving others. That is what the world calls a romance. You know her, at any rate, I suppose. Of course I know her. On the first night I was at the theater, the horrid old manager came round to the box after the performance was over and offered to take me behind the scenes and introduce me to her. I was furious with him and told him that Juliet had been dead for hundreds of years and that her body was lying in a marble tomb in Verona. I think from his blank look of amazement that he was under the impression that I had taken too much champagne or something. I'm not surprised. Then he asked me if I wrote for any of the newspapers. I told him I never even read them. He seemed terribly disappointed at that and confided to me that all the dramatic circles were in a conspiracy against him and that they were every one of them to be bought. I should not wonder if he was quite right there, but on the other hand, judging from their appearance, most of them cannot be at all expensive. Well, he seemed to think they were beyond his means, laughed Dorian. By this time, however, the lights were being put out in the theater, and I had to go. He wanted me to try some cigars that he strongly recommended. I declined. The next night, of course, I arrived at the place again. When he saw me, he made me a low bow and assured me that I was a munificent patron of art. He was a most offensive brute, though he had an extraordinary passion for Shakespeare. He told me once, with an air of pride, that his five bankruptcies were entirely due to the bard, as he insisted on calling him. He seemed to think it a distinction. It was a distinction, my dear Dorian, a great distinction. Most people become bankrupt through having invested too heavily in the prose of life. To have ruined oneself over poetry is an honor. But when did you first speak to Miss Sybil Vane? The third night. She had been playing Rosalind. I could not help going round. I had thrown her some flowers, and she had looked at me. At least I fancied that she had. The manager was persistent. He seemed determined to take me behind, so I consented. I was curious my not wanting to know her, wasn't I? No, I don't think so. My dear Harry, why? I will tell you some other time. Now I want to know about the girl. Sybil? Oh, she was so shy and so gentle. There is something of a child about her. Her eyes opened wide in exquisite wonder when I told her what I thought of her performance. And she seemed quite unconscious of her power. I think we were both rather nervous. The manager stood grinning at the doorway of the dusty green room, making elaborate speeches about us both. While we stood looking at each other like children, he would insist on calling me my lord, 
so I had to assure Sybil that I was not anything of the kind. She said quite simply to me, you look more like a prince. I must call you Prince Charming. Upon my word, Dorian, Miss Sybil knows how to pay compliments. You don't understand her, Harry. She regarded me merely as a person in a play. She knows nothing of life. She lives with her mother, a faded, tired woman who played Lady Capulet in a sort of magenta dressing wrapper on the first night and looks as if she had seen better days. I know that look. It depresses me, murmured Lord Henry, examining his rings. The manager wanted to tell me her history, but I said it did not interest me. You were quite right. There is always something infinitely mean about other people's tragedies. Sybil is the only thing I care about. What is it to me where she came from? From her little head to her little feet, she is absolutely and entirely divine. Every night of my life I go to see her act, and every night she is more marvelous. That is the reason, I suppose, that you never dine with me now. I thought you must have some curious romance on hand, and you have, but it is not quite what I expected. My dear Harry, we either lunch or sup together every day, and I have been to the opera with you several times, said Dorian, opening his blue eyes in wonder. You always come dreadfully late. Well, I can't help going to see Sybil play, he cried, even if it is only for a single act. I get hungry for her presence, and when I think of the wonderful soul that is hidden away in that little ivory body, I am filled with awe. You can dine with me tonight, Dorian, can't you? He shook his head. Tonight she is Imogen, he answered, and tomorrow night she will be Juliet. When is she Sybil Vane? Never. I congratulate you. How horrid you are. She is all the great heroines of the world in one. She is more than an individual. You laugh, but I tell you she has genius. I love her, and I must make her love me. You, who know all the secrets of life, tell me how to charm Sybil Vane to love me. I want to make Romeo jealous. I want the dead lovers of the world to hear our laughter and grow sad. I want a breath of our passion to stir their dust into consciousness, to wake their ashes into pain. My God, Harry, how I worship her. He was walking up and down the room as he spoke. Hectic spots of red burned on his cheeks. He was terribly excited. Lord Henry watched him with a subtle sense of pleasure. How different he was now from the shy, frightened boy he had met in Basil Halward's studio. His nature had developed like a flower, had borne blossoms of secret flame. Out of its secret hiding place had crept his soul and desire, had come to meet it on the way. And what do you propose to do, said Lord Henry at last. I want you and Basil to come with me some night and see her act. I have not the slightest fear of the result. You are certain to acknowledge her genius. Then we must get her out of that manager's hands. She is bound to him for three years, at least for two years and eight months from the present time. I shall have to pay him something, of course. When all that is settled, I shall take a West End theater and bring her out properly. She will make the world as mad as she has made me. That would be impossible, my dear boy. Yes, she will. She is not merely art, consummates art, instinct in her, but she has personality also, 
and you have often told me that it is personalities, not principles, that move the age. Well, what night shall we go? Let me see. Today is Tuesday. Let us fix tomorrow. She plays Juliet tomorrow. All right, the Bristol at 8 o'clock, and I will get Basil. Not 8, Harry, please. Half past 6. We must be there before the curtain rises. You must see her in the first act where she meets Romeo. Half past six, what an hour. It will be like having a meat tea or reading an English novel. It must be seven. No gentleman dines before seven. Shall you see Basil between this and then, or shall I write to him? Dear Basil, I have not laid eyes on him for a week. It is rather horrid of me, as he has sent me my portrait in the most wonderful frame, specially designed by himself, and though I am a little jealous of the picture for being a whole month younger than I am, I must admit that I delight in it. Perhaps you had better write to him. I don't want to see him alone. He says things that annoy me, he give, but he gives me good advice. Lord Henry smiled. People are very fond of giving away what they need most themselves. It is what I call depth of generosity. Oh, Basil is the best of fellows, but he seems to me to be just a bit of a Philistine. Since I have known you, Harry, I have discovered that. Basil, my dear boy, puts everything that is charming in him into his work. The consequence is that he has nothing left for life but his prejudices, his principles, and his common sense. The only artists I have ever known who are personally delightful are bad artists. Good artists exist simply in what they make and consequently are perfectly uninteresting in what they are. A great poet, a really great poet, is the most unpoetical of all creatures, but inferior poets are absolutely fascinating. The worse their rhymes are, the more picturesque they look. The mere fact of having published a book of second-rate sonnets makes a man quite irresistible. He lives the poetry that he cannot write. The others write the poetry that they dare not realize. I wonder, is that really so, Harry, said Dorian Gray, putting some perfume on his handkerchief out of a large gold-topped bottle that stood on the table. It must be if you say it. And now I am off. Imogen is waiting for me. Don't forget about tomorrow. Goodbye. As he left the room, Lord Henry's heavy eyelids drooped, and he began to think. Certainly few people had ever interested him so much as Dorian Gray, and yet the lad's mad adoration of someone else caused him not the slightest pang of annoyance or jealousy. He was pleased by it. It made him a more interesting study. He had been always enthralled by the methods of natural science, but the ordinary subject matter of that science had seemed to him trivial and of no import. And so he had begun by vivisecting him, as he had ended by vivisecting others. Human life, that appeared to him one thing worth investigating. Compared to it, there was nothing else of any value. It was true that as one watched life in its curious crucible of pain and pleasure, one could not wear over one's face a mask of glass, nor keep the sulfurous fumes from troubling the brain, and making the imagination turbid with monstrous fancies and misshapen dreams. There were poisons so subtle that to know their properties, one had to sicken of them. There were maladies so strange that one had to pass through them 
if one thought to understand their nature, and yet what a great reward one received, how wonderful the whole world became to one. To note the curious hard logic of passion and the emotional colored life of the intellect, to observe where they meet and where they separated, at what point they were in unison and at what point they were at discord, there was a delight in that. What matter the cost was. One could never pay too high a price for any sensation. He was conscious, and the thought brought a gleam of pleasure into his brown agate eyes, that it was through certain words of his, musical words said with musical utterance, that Dorian Gray's soul had turned to this white girl and bowed in worship before her. To a large extent, the lad was his own creation. He had made him premature. That was something. Ordinary people waited till life disclosed to them its secrets, but to the few, to the elect, the mysteries of life were revealed before the veil was drawn away. Sometimes this was the effect of art, and chiefly of the art of literature, which dealt immediately with the passions and the intellect. But now and then a complex personality took the place and assumed the office of art, was indeed in its way a real work of art, life having its elaborate masterpieces just as poetry has, or sculpture, or painting. Yes, the lad was premature. He was gathering his harvest while it was yet spring. The pulse and passion of youth were in him, but he was becoming self-conscious. It was delightful to watch him with his beautiful face and his beautiful soul. He was a thing to wonder at. It was no matter how it all ended or was destined to end. He was like one of those gracious figures in a pageant or a play whose joys seem to be remote from one, but whose sorrows stir one's sense of beauty and whose wounds are like red roses. Soul and body, body and soul, how mysterious they were. There was animalism in the soul, and the body had its moments of spirituality. The senses could refine, and the intellect could degrade. Who could say where the fleshly impulse ceased, or the physical impulse began? How shallow were the arbitrary definitions of ordinary psychologists, and yet how difficult to decide between the claims of the various schools. Was the soul a shadow seated in the house of a sin? Or was the body really in the soul, as Giordano Bruno thought? The separation of spirit from matter was a mystery, and the union of spirit with matter was a mystery also. All right, so I'll stop there with chapter four. Um, and so you see how... This chapter gives a lot of um, Wilde's very satirical social critique vocalized through the Henrys. Lord and Lady Henry play a big part in the way that Wilde is satirizing uh, British marriage culture, European, European marriage culture. Um, this is a subject that Wilde also takes up in the popular play, The Importance of Being Earnest, and in this, theater is such a big part of Wilde, right? Um, the dialogue and the aphorisms come out quite 
theatrically. Uh, Wilde tends to write in dramatic monologues through his characters. Um, and you see that in chapter four. Um, so to just give a brief overview of the plot of the next few chapters, because the next chapter I'm going to read is chapter seven, um, Dorian Gray continues to woo Sybil Vane. Um, the two meet, uh, they fall desperately in love. Um, and there's not a marriage proposal, but a sense of professed love. Um, and remember in chapter four, the chapter that I've just read, uh, Dorian Gray sends, tends to admit to a superficiality of the love he feels for Sybil Vane, even though he stresses her importance to him, right? He's acknowledging that she sees him merely as an actor in the play of his life. Um, he sees her as having a great personality, but that she's able to take on these roles of all of these various different, different female characters in Shakespeare plays are what give her her genius and her mystery. Um, he's not really seeing her for her. So, uh, and that's something that Lord Henry Harry is pushing on as he's teasing, uh, as he's teasing Dorian Gray about the connection, right? Constantly asking, how long have you known her? Like those jabs. Um, it's a way of expressing his Lord Henry's affection for the boy through reminders to be cautious. And then of course, near the end of the section that I read, you start to see that a loving attachment has formed for Dorian Gray on the part of Lord Henry. And Lord Henry is a poet and a philosopher, so his internal monologue that we get in that section is full of lofty ideas that reflect uh, Oscar Wilde's own sort of aphorisms and witticisms about art. Um, so this is kind of a little bit of artistic uh, ventriloquism about a, a theory of modernist art. It's not so much autobiography as it is um, using literature as a vehicle to formulate um, socially aware thought. Um, to use a term, a, a, a term from feminist theory, uh, bell hooks is a consciousness raising, right? So Oscar Wilde is taking hidden subjects, um, desire, decadence, homosexuality, and sort of writing about them in such a way that consciousness is raised in subtle ways without having to explicitly um, speak about these things in such a way so as to cause a danger. Um, there, there's another term that would be used to describe this. Frederick Date Jameson coined this term, the political unconsciousness, right? And this is a way of discussing literature as a way through which marginalized groups people who have been repressed or silenced use the act of writing and uh, metaphor, um, subtext and interpretation as a way to uh, articulate their own existence. You start to build a language for alternate modes of existing, a language of resistance coming out in literature. Um, Jameson, as he's writing about the political unconsciousness, looks a, a lot at Russian literature um, 
in particular, but uh, it definitely applies to a lot of different types and groups of literature. Um, American literary critic and political theorist Lauren Berlant utilizes Frederick Damison's notion of the political unconsciousness to um, examine queer, queer literature in the United States in the 20th century. Um, and I kind of, uh, in my work, use the term to apply it to modernist literature, thinking of the ways that um, our current language for describing the queer experience, the LGBTQ plus experience, really originates in these uh, scenes from modernist literature, right? Basil Howard's affection for Dorian Gray, which annoys Dorian Gray, we learn in chapter four, and then also Lord Henry and Dorian Gray's relationship, these moments of intimacy that are undeniably queer moments, right? Uh, and this is what, I mean, Wilde during his career was like sort of persecuted for his representation of these themes and has been famously and controversially bisexual. He was imprisoned um, for homosexuality, spent a portion of his life um, persecuted for his identity. Um, so he is a key figure uh, in modernism for his writing, the art that he gave us, his theories on art, but also history, um, his uh, revolutionizing of modes of articulating uh, difference in terms of uh, desire, right? Um, so moving ahead, I'm going to look at chapter seven, um, and this is a turning point in the novel. Um, it's a moment where the love between Dorian Gray and Sybil Vane is exposed for its superficial nature. Chapter seven. For some reason or other, the house was crowded that night, and the manager who met them at the door was beaming from ear to ear with an oily, tremulous smile. He escorted them to their box with a sort of pompous humility, waving his fat, jeweled hands and talking at the top of his voice. Dorian Gray loathed him more than ever. He felt as if he had come to look for Miranda and had been met by Caliban. Lord Henry, upon the other hand, rather liked him. At least he declared he did and insisted on shaking him by the hand and assuring him that he was proud to meet a man who had discovered a real genius and gone bankrupt over a poet. Howard amused himself with watching the faces in the pit. The heat was terribly oppressive, and the huge sunlight flamed like a monstrous dahlia with petals of yellow fire. The youths in the gallery had taken off their coats and waistcoats and hung them over the side. They talked to each other across the theater and shared their oranges with the tawdry girls who sat beside them. Some women were laughing in the pit. 
their voices were horribly shrill and discordant. The sound of the popping of corks came from the bar. What a place to find one's divinity in, said Lord Henry. Yes, answered Dorian Gray. It was here I found her, and she is divine behind, beyond all living things. When she acts, you will forget everything. These common rough people with their coarse faces and brutal gestures become quite different when she is on the stage. They sit silently and watch her. They weep and laugh as she wills them to do. She makes them as responsive as a violin. She spiritualizes them, and one feels that they are of the same flesh and blood as oneself. The same flesh and blood as oneself? Oh, I hope not, exclaimed Lord Henry, who was scanning the occupants of the gallery through his opera glass. Don't pay attention to him, Dorian, said the painter. I understand what you mean, and I believe in this girl. Anyone you love must be marvelous, and any girl that has the effect you describe must be fine and noble. To spiritualize one's age, that is something worth doing. If this girl can give a soul to those who have lived without one, if she can create the sense of beauty in people whose lives have been sordid and ugly, if she can strip them of their selfishness and, selfishness and lend them tears for sorrows that are not their own, she is worthy of all your adoration, worthy of the adoration of the world. This marriage is quite right. I did not think so at first, but I admit it now. The gods made Sybil Vane for you. Without her, you would have been incomplete. Thanks, Basil, answered Dorian Gray, pressing his hand. I knew that you would understand me. Harry is so cynical, he terrifies me. But here is the orchestra. It is quite dreadful, but it only lasts for about five minutes. Then the curtain rises, and you will see the girl to whom I am going to give all my life, to whom I have given everything that is good in me. A quarter of an hour afterwards, amidst an extraordinary turmoil of applause, Sybil Vane stepped onto the stage. Yes, she was certainly lovely to look at. One of the loveliest creatures, Lord Henry thought, that he had ever seen. There was something of the fawn in her, shy grace and startled eyes, a faint blush like the shadow of a rose in a mirror of silver came to her cheeks as she glanced at the crowded, enthusiastic house. She stepped back a few paces and her lips seemed to tremble. Basil Halward leapt to his feet and begun to applaud. Motionless and as one in the dream sat Dorian, gazing at her. Lord Henry peered through his glasses, murmuring, charming, charming. The scene was the hall of Capulet's house, and Romeo, in his pilgrim's dress, had entered with Mercutio and his other friends. The band, such as it was, struck up a few bars of music, and the dance began. Through the crowd of ungainly, shabbily dressed actors, Sybil Vane moved like a creature from a finer world. Her body swayed while she danced, as a plant always sways in the water. The curves of her throat were the curves of a white lily. Her hands seemed to be made of cool ivory. 
Yet she, she was curiously listless. She showed no sign of joy when her eyes rested on Romeo. The few words she had to speak, good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much, which masterly devotion shows in this, for saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch, and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. With the brief dialogue that follows were spoken in a thoroughly artificial manner. The voice was exquisite, but from the point of view of tone, it was absolutely false. It was wrong in color. It took away all the life from the verse. It made the passion unreal. Dorian Gray grew pale as he watched her. He was puzzled and anxious. Neither of his friends dared to say anything to him. She seemed to them to be absolutely incompetent. They were horribly disappointed. Yet they felt that the true test of any Juliet is in the balcony scene of the second act. They waited for that. If she failed there, there was nothing in her. She looked charming as she came out in the moonlight. That could not be denied. But the staginess of her acting was unbearable and grew worse as she went on. Her gestures became absurdly artificial. She overemphasized everything that she had to say. The beautiful passage, Thou knowest the mask of night is on my face, else would a maiden blush bepaint my cheek for that which thou hast heard me speak tonight, was declaimed with the painful precision of a schoolgirl who has been taught to recite by some second-rate professor of elocution. When she leaned over the balcony and came to those wonderful lines, although I joy in thee, I have no joy of this contract tonight. It is too rash, too unadvised, too sudden, too like the lightning, which doth cease to be ere one can say it lightens. Sweet, good night. This bud of love by summer's ripening breath may prove a beauteous flower when next we meet. She spoke the words as though they conveyed no meaning to her. It was not nervousness. Indeed, so far from being nervous, she was absolutely self-contained. It was simply bad art. She was a complete failure. Even the common, uneducated audience of the pit and gallery lost their interest in the play. They got restless and began to talk loudly and to whistle. The manager, who was standing at the back of the dress circle, stamped and swore with rage. The only person unmoved was the girl herself. When the second act was over, there came a storm of hisses, and Lord Henry got up from his chair and put on his coat. She is quite beautiful, Dorian, he said, but she can't act. Let us go. I am going to see the play through, answered the lad in a hard, bitter voice. I am awfully sorry that I have made you waste an evening, Harry. I apologize to you both. My dear Dorian, I should think that Miss Vane was ill, interrupted Howard. We will come some other night. I wish she were ill, he rejoined, but she seems to me to be simply callous and cold. She has entirely altered. Last night she was a great artist. This evening she is merely a commonplace, mediocre actress. Don't talk like that about anyone you love, Dorian. Love is a more wonderful thing than art. They are both simply forms of imitation, remarked Lord Henry. 
but do let us go. Dorian, you must not stay here any longer. It is not good for one's morals to see bad acting. Besides, I don't suppose you will want your wife to act. So what does it matter if she plays Juliet like a wooden doll? She is very lovely, and if she, she knows as little about life as she does about acting, she will be a delightful experience. There are only two kinds of people who are really fascinating. People who know absolutely everything, and people who know absolutely nothing. Good heavens, my dear boy, don't look so tragic. The secret of remaining young is never to have an emotion that is unbecoming. Come to the club with Basil and myself. We will smoke cigarettes and drink to the beauty of Sybil Vane. She is beautiful. What more can you want? Go away, Harry, cried the lad. I want to be alone. Basil, you must go. Ah, can't you see that my heart is breaking? The hot tears came into his eyes, his lips trembled, and rushing to the back of the box, he leaned up against the wall, hiding his face in his hands. Let us go, Basil, said Lord Henry, with a strange tenderness in his voice, and the two young men passed out together. A few moments afterwards, the footlights flared up, and the curtain rose on the third act. Dorian Gray went back to his seat. He looked pale and proud and indifferent. The play dragged on and seemed interminable. Half of the audience went out, tramping in heavy boots and laughing. The whole thing was a fiasco. The, the last act was played to almost empty benches. The curtain went down on a titter and some groans. As soon as it was over, Dorian Gray rushed behind the scenes into the green room. The girl was standing there alone with a look of triumph on her face. Her eyes were lit with an exquisite fire. There was a radiance about her. Her parted lips were smiling over some secret of their own. When he entered, she looked at him and an expression of infinite joy came over her. How badly I acted tonight, Dorian, she cried. Horribly, he answered, gazing at her in amazement. Horribly, it was dreadful, are you ill? You have no idea what it was. You have no idea what I suffered. This girl smiled. Dorian, she answered, leaning over his, lingering over his name with long-drawn music in her voice, as though it were sweeter than honey to the red petals of her mouth. Dorian, you should have understood, but you understand now, don't you? Understand what? he asked angrily. Why I was so bad tonight, why I shall always be bad, why I shall, why I sh why I shall never act again. He shrugged his shoulders. You are ill, I suppose. When you are ill, you shouldn't act. You make yourself ridiculous. My friends were bored. I was bored. She seemed not to listen to him. She was transfigured with joy. An ecstasy of happiness dominated. Dorian, Dorian, she cried, before I knew you, acting was the one reality of my life. It was only in the theater that I lived. I thought that it was all true. I was Rosalind one night and Portia the other. The joy of Beatrice was my joy and the sorrows of Cordelia were mine also. I believed in everything. The common people who acted with me seemed to be godlike. The painted scenes were my world. I knew nothing but shadows, and I thought them real. You came, oh, my beautiful love, and you freed my soul from prison. You taught me what reality really is. Tonight, for the first time in my life, I saw through the hollowness, the 
sham, the silliness of the empty pageant in which I had always played. Tonight, for the first time, I became conscious that the Romeo was hideous and old and painted, that the moonlight in the orchard was false, that the scenery was vulgar, and that the words I had to speak were unreal, were not my words, were not what I wanted to say. You had brought me something higher, something of which all art is but a reflection. You had made me understand what love really is, my love, my love, my Prince Charming, Prince of Life, I have grown sick of shadows. You are more to me than all art can ever be. What have I to do with the puppets of a play? When I came on tonight, I could not understand how it was that everything had gone from me. I thought that I was going to be wonderful. I found that I could do nothing. Suddenly it dawned on my soul what it all meant. The knowledge was exquisite to me. I heard them hissing and I smiled. What could they know of love such as ours? Take me away, Dorian. Take me away with you where we can be quite alone. I hate the stage. I might mimic a passion that I do not feel, but I cannot mimic one that burns me like fire. Oh, Dorian, Dorian, you understand now what it signifies. Even if I could do it, it would be profanation for me to play at being in love. You have made me see that. He flung himself down on the sofa and turned away his face. You have killed my love, he muttered. She looked at him in wonder and laughed. He made no answer. She came across to him and with her little fingers stroked his hair. She knelt down and pressed his hands to her lips. He drew them away and a shudder ran through him. Then he leaped up and went to the door. Yes, he cried, you have killed my love. You have used to stir my imagination. Now you don't even stir my curiosity. You simply produce no effect. I loved you because you were marvelous, because you had genius and intellect, because you realized the dreams of great poets and gave shape and substance to the shadows of art. You have thrown it all away. You are shallow and stupid. My God, how mad I was to love you. What a fool I have been. You are nothing to me now. I will never see you again. I will never think of you. I will never mention your name. You don't know what you were to me once. Why once? Oh, I can't bear to think of it. I wish I had never laid eyes upon you. You have spoiled the romance of my life. How little can you know of love if you say it mars your art. Without your art, you are nothing. I would have made you famous, splendid, magnificent. The world would have worshipped you, and you would have borne my name. What are you now, a third-rate actress with a pretty face? The girl grew white and trembled. She clenched her hands together, and her voice seemed to catch in her throat. You are not serious, Dorian, she murmured. You are acting. Acting. I leave that to you. You do it so well, he answered bitterly. She rose from her knees and, with a piteous expression of pain in her face, came across the room to him. She put her hand upon his arm and looked into his eyes. He thrust her back. Don't touch me, he cried. A low moan broke from her and she flung herself at his feet and lay there like a trampled flower. Dorian, Dorian, don't leave me, she whispered. I am so sorry I didn't act well. I was thinking of you all the time, but I will try, indeed I will try. 
It came so suddenly across me, my love for you. I think I should never have known it if you had not kissed me, if we had not kissed each other. Kiss me again, my love. Don't go away from me. I couldn't bear it. Oh, don't go away from me. My brother, no, never mind. He didn't mean it. He was in jest, but you, oh, can't you forgive me for tonight? I will work so hard and try to improve. Don't be cruel to me because I love you better than anything in the world. After all, it is only once that I have not pleased you. But you are quite right, Dorian. I should have shown myself more of an artist. It was foolish of me, and yet I couldn't help it. Oh, don't leave me, don't leave me. A fit of passionate sobbing choked her. She crouched on the floor like a wounded thing, and Dorian Gray, with his beautiful eyes, looked down at her, and his chiseled lips curled in exquisite disdain. There is always something ridiculous about the emotions of people whom one has ceased to love. Sybil Vane seemed to him to be absurdly melodramatic. Her tears and sobs annoyed him. I am going, he said at last in his calm, clear voice. I don't wish to be unkind, but I can't see you again. You have disappointed me. She wept silently and made no answer, but crept nearer. Her little hands stretched blindly out and appeared to be seeking for him. He turned on his heel and left the room in a few moments. He was out of the theater. Where he went to, he hardly knew. He remembered wandering through dimly lit streets past gaunt black shadowed archways and evil looking houses. Women with hoarse voices and harsh laughter had called after him. Drunkards had reeled by, cursing and chattering to themselves like monstrous apes. He had seen grotesque children huddled upon doorsteps and heard shrieks and oaths from gloomy courts. Well, I'll stop there. That takes us about the first one-third of uh, the picture of Dorian Gray. Um, Shortly after this scene and uh, Dorian Gray's rejection of her, Sybil Vane takes her own life, um, distraught and uh, shamed by his rejection, um, by the loss of his love, feeling as though her career is over. Um, and it's in Sybil Vane's suicide that we get Oscar Wilde's ultimate critique of the marriage institution, the marriage plot, um, erotic desire between women and men contrasted to the homosocial forms of loving attachment that we see among the men in the novel. Um, Wilde was not the first to introduce this kind of tension um, surrounding uh, homoeroticism and heteronormativity. It was common in modernism, particularly European authored texts. I've talked on the podcast about Virginia Woolf's critique of uh, heteronormativity in the, in the previous episode. Um, Authors such as Balzac, uh, Marcel Proust, Marquis de Sade, and Leopold von Sacher-Massoch 
belong to this conversation as well. All of these authors were famously censored and persecuted for their explorations of sexuality and eroticism um, through an exaggerated lens of sadomasochistic fantasy. And the word sadomasochism itself is, of course, uh, a combination of the names of the Marquis de Sade and Leopold von Sacher Massach, um, the two authors who really popular, popularized conceptions of um, hedonism and eroticism as equal parts of pleasure and pain, um, with the painful components often outweighing and outlasting the momentary pleasures one gains from a sexual encounter. French post-structuralist theorist Roland Barthes unpacks and examines the history of love's uh, sadomasochistic attachment style in uh, modernist literature in his A Lover's Discourse, um, where he offers a series of philosophical fragments on love's effect on lovers and objects of affection. It's written quite poetically um, and generalizes a lot of concepts um, that recur as motifs through literature. This uh, relationship between Dorian Gray and Sybil Vane um, being a motif that Wilde is placing pressure on in the picture of Dorian Gray. So what Roland Barthes has to say in A Lover's Discourse is really relevant to this conversation. Um, and there are a few terms that he defines in that text that I want to read quickly before wrapping up. Um, the ones that come out in that text that are most relevant to Dorian Gray um, and to Wilde's project um, are uh, Barth's emphasis on the agony, anxiety, and sense of annihilation the loving subject experiences when they feel their love is unrequited or un unreciprocated. And this is something that is present in all of the relationships of the text, but which just um, is highlighted poignantly in this apex moment in the text where Sybil Vane commits suicide. Um, but certainly Basil Hallward's affection for Dorian Gray is unreciprocated. And in some ways, Lord Henry is to, Henry's is as well. Um, indeed, Dorian Gray does feel some kind of affection for both men. Um, but Sybil Vane is who he gives his ultimate uh, loving attachment to um, and then rescinds that. The remainder of the novel plays out and Dorian Gray gets into other romantic exploits, which I won't go into in this episode. But if you're interested in that narrative, I do encourage you to read the novel. Um, so Bart's philosophical fragments on the painful poignance of this kind of love and loving attachment are structured around redefining anxiety and depression and other negative emotions around love and unrequited love's effect on the individual. So uh, the thought of uh, the phrase being lovesick is uh, something that is under this blanket of explorations Bart is doing. And so I'm just going to read through um, three of these uh, because it does help, like I was saying, to get a glimpse of the critique that 
um, I'm wanting to draw out um, in these relationships that I've just read. So Bart opens a lover's discourse first with this sense that um, love is a kind of annihilation and there's a kind of being engulfed or annihilated by um, the simple act of being in love and of loving. So I am engulfed, I succumb. To be engulfed, an outburst of annihilation which affects the amorous subject in despair or fulfillment. Either woe or well-being, sometimes I have a craving to be engulfed. This morning in the country, the weather is mild, overcast. I am suffering from some incident. The notion of suicide occurs to me, pure of any resentment, not blackmailing anyone. An insipid notion, it alters nothing, breaks nothing, matches the color, the silence, the desolation of this morning. Another day in the rain, we're waiting for the boat at the lake. From happiness this time, the same outburst of annihilation sweeps through me. This is how it happens sometimes. Misery or joy engulfs me without any particular tumult ensuing, nor any pathos. I am dissolved, not dismembered. I fall, I flow, I melt. Such thoughts, grazed, touched, tested, the way you test the water with your foot, can recur. Nothing solemn about them. This is exactly what gentleness is. So we get this sense that love is a kind of dissolution, a kind of suspension in midair is what is uh, being described affectively in what Bart is saying. So, and this is a foundational text, I should say, for affect theory or a branch of uh, theory that's coming out now that examines sensation, senses, and feeling, and how feeling affects um, interpretation of the world, interpretation of literature. And obviously this is key for Dorian Gray, which even from just the brief portions that I've read, you get a sense through Wilde's exploration as of decadence and desire, that is a very sensual and sense-oriented text um, all of the characters are hyper-motivated by their feelings and their intuition. Um, some are presented as being more logical than others, but Dorian Gray in particular is kind of a free-spirited, emotionally-driven character. Um, and the same, to a certain extent, can be said of Lord Henry, though Lord Henry is much more introspective as well. So moving on, a key component in the lover's discourse for Roland Barthes is that the loving subject is someone who is always being made to wait on or wait for their, uh, their the object of their love. So there's this sense that love is a kind of waiting. A tumult of anxiety provoked by waiting for the loved being, subject to trivial delays, rendezvous, letters, phone calls, returns. 
I am waiting for an arrival, a return, a promised sign. This can be futile or immensely pathetic. In waiting, a woman waits for her lover at night in the forest. I am waiting for no more than a telephone call, but the anxiety is the same. Everything is solemn. I have no sense of proportions. There is a sonography of waiting. I organize it, manipulate it, cut out a portion of time in which I shall mime the loss of the loved object and provoke all the effects of a minor mourning. This is then acted out as a play. The setting represents the interior of a cafe. We have a rendezvous. I am waiting. In the prologue, the sole actor of the play, and with reason, I discern and indicate the other's delay. This delay is, as yet, only a mathematical, computable entity. I look at my watch several times. The prologue ends with a brainstorm. I decide to take it badly. I release the anxiety of waiting. Act one now begins. It is occupied by suppositions. Was there a misunderstanding as to the time, the place? I try to recall the moment when the rendezvous was made, the details which were supplied, what is to be done, anxiety or behavior? Try another cafe, telephone. But if the other comes during these absences, not seeing me, the other might leave, etc. Act two is the act of anger. I address violent reproaches to the absent one. All the same, he or she could have had, he or she knows perfectly well, oh, if she or he could be here so that I could reproach her or him for not being here. In act three, I attain, I obtain anxiety in pure state, the anxiety of abandonment. I have just shifted in a second from absence to death. The other is, is as if dead, explosion of grief. I am internally livid. That is the play. It can be shortened by the other's arrival. If the other arrives in act one, the greeting is calm. If the other arrives in act two, there is a scene. If in act two, there is recognition, the action of grace. I breathe deeply, like Peleus emerging from the underground chambers and rediscovering life, the odor of roses. The anxiety of waiting is not continuously violent. It has its mat moments. I am waiting, and everything around my waiting is stricken with unreality. In this cafe, I look at the others who come in, chat, joke, read calmly. They are not waiting. So... There's the sense that the lover is the one who waits, outlined, and that the waiting is a kind of suspension and a kind of painful suspension. There's a poignancy to it and an urgency, an anxiety. Um, so it's written in a way that's very frantic, right? Um, Bart is trying to mimic the emotion in his words. That's why the theory comes out in such a choppy kind of way, meant, intended to be poetic. Um, and that's written to mimic the anxiety of the loving, the loving subject. So to love is to wait in this place of anxiety. Until finally approached by the lover or the love, loved object 
And so moving on, jumping ahead, jump, jumping gears a little bit to um, specific to Sybil Vane and Dorian Gray, um, the final two terms that I'm going to go over, one is ravishment and then the other, which was uh, kind of introduced earlier in the BART that I was reading, is this notion of the, the suicidal ideation that comes from love. So ravishment. The supposedly initial episode, though it may be reconstructed after the fact, during which the amorous subject is ravished, captured and enchanted by the image of the loved object. The popular name for this is love at first sight, the scholarly name, enamoration. Language, vocabulary, has long since posited the equivalence of love and war. In both cases, it is a matter of conquering, ravishing, capturing, etc. Each time a subject falls in love, he revives a fragment of the archaic time when men were supposed to carry off women in order to ensure exogamy. Every lover who falls in love at first sight has something of a Sabine woman or of some other celebrated victim of ravishment. However, there is an odd turnabout here. In the ancient myth, the ravisher is active. He wants to seize his prey. He is the subject of the rape of which the object is a woman, as we know, invariably passive. In the modern myth, that of love as passion, the contrary is the case. The ravisher wants nothing, does nothing. He is motionless as any image and it is the ravished object who is the real subject of rape. The object of capture becomes the subject of love and the subject of the conquest moved in, moves into the class of loved object. There nonetheless remains a public vestige of the archaic model. The lover, the one who has been ravished, is always implicitly feminized. This singular reversal may perhaps proceed from the fact that for us, the subject, since Christianity, is the one who suffers. Where there is a wound, there is a subject. Thereby becoming himself, and the deeper the wound at the body's center, at the heart, the more the subject becomes a subject. For the subject is intimacy. The wound is of a frightful intimacy, such as love's wound, a radical chasm at the roots of being, which cannot be closed, and out of which the subject drains, constituting himself as a subject in this very draining. It would suffice to imagine our Sabine woman wounded to make her into the subject of a love story. So Bard is outlining a trope here, the trope of the ravished, scorned woman, um, and He's unpacking the ways in which this trope is a kind of uh, mutually assured destruction that comes out of the notion of love or intense passion at first sight. Um, the act of uh, seduction, um, which can often be repainted as um, rape and false marriage proposal, um, as it is in things like Tessa d'Ubervilles, or wrongful seduction of a man by a woman, which is largely the case in Dorian Gray 
uh, Dorian Gray is very angry with Sybil Vane, feels justified in his rejection of her, um, and then learns of her suicide and is essentially not very badly affected by it, right? Her death doesn't really affect him. And the fact of the matter is that's because he never truly loves her, right? His love for her is a very superficial, um, phony kind of love. And uh, the flip side of that is Sybil Vane, who did truly pour all of her love into Dorian Gray, comes out of the situation feeling ravished. And then that experience of ravishment leads to ideas of suicide, which is the point on which Bart ends uh, a lover's discourse. So I'll just read that section now. In the amorous realm, the desire for suicide is frequent. A trifle provokes it. For the slightest injury, I want to commit suicide. Upon meditation, amorous suicide does figure as a motif. The notion is a light one, an easy idea, a kind of rabid algebra, which my discourse requires at this particular moment. I grant it no substantial consistency, nor do I foresee the heavy decor, the trivial consequences of death. I scarcely know how I am going to kill myself, but it is a phrase, only a sentence, which I darkly caress, but from which a trifle will distract me. And the man who for three quarters of an hour had just planned his own death stood at this very moment on a chair to search his bookshelves for the price list of the St. Gobain mirrors. Sometimes in the brilliant light cast by some trivial circumstance and swept away by the reverberations the incident has provoked, I suddenly see myself caught in the trap, immobilized in, in, in an impossible situation. There are only two ways out, either or, and they are both barred, nothing to be said in either direction. Then the idea of suicide saves me, for I can speak it and do not fail to do so. I am reborn and die this idea with the colors of life, either directing it aggressively against the loved object, a familiar blackmail, or in fantasy uniting myself with the loved object in death. I shall lie down in the grave, pressed close against you. Upon discussion, the scientists conclude that animals do not commit suicide at most. Certain species, horses, dogs, have an impulse to self-mutilation, Yet it is apropos of horses that Werther <clears throat> imitates the nobility which marks every suicide. I have been told that a noble breed of horses, when overheated and hunted almost to death, will by instinct bite open a vein and so recover their breath. I often feel the same. I should like to open one of my veins and gain eternal freedom for myself. So that's uh, Bart quoting Werther, um, a, a thought on this, the suicidal ideation and where it comes from. Uh, and Bart is arguing in this section that uh, suicidal ideation originates in feeling scorned by love. Um, and indeed, this is a common trope in popular culture, even today, right? I can think of examples um the popular netflix series 13 reasons why kind of uh 
popularizes that notion that young women in particular um, experience intense uh, depression and suicidal amorous thoughts of thoughts of suicide related to scorned amorous connection right what Bart refers to as amorous suicide um, so hopefully I've given you some things to think about with respect to the picture of Dorian Gray um, desire a social critique of a kind of anxious attachment style that we see coming out in um, erotic attachments between men and women and how Wilde is contrasting that with um, the need to make space and availability for other kinds of love and loving attachment, particularly homosocial and homoerotic connections between men. So if you are intrigued by this plot and the social critique um, Dorian Gray is making, uh, but don't have the time to read the entire novel necessarily, I could definitely recommend that you check out um, the film adaptation of The Picture of Dorian Gray, which is available on, on Amazon Prime, as well as the film Velvet Goldmine, which is itself kind of a loose uh, adaptation of Oscar Wilde, there are definitely, of, of Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, there are definitely elements of the novel peppered throughout the film um, in a kind of palimpsestic way. Um, but the film itself is a mock biopic of um, Brian Slade, who is a glam rocker very closely resembling David Bowie in his Ziggy Stardust years. Um, so inspired by the life and times of David Bowie, but also loosely adapted from the picture of Dorian Gray. Um, there's an all-star cast that is uh, very uh, beautiful, um, right? Brian Slade is paid, played by a young Jonathan Reese Myers, um, co-starring with Ewan McGregor and Christian Bale. Um, so there are the kind of, uh, so Brian Slade is the Dorian Gray of the group as it were, um, and uh, Christian Bale and uh, um, Ewan McGregor stand in for Basil Howard and um, Lord Henry and the roles that they play. So there's a lot of like um, those elements peppered throughout the film without it being a straightforward adaptation. So it's definitely an interesting exploration of literature's timelessness and the picture of Dorian Gray's timeless effect on um, the sexual revolution and queer culture. That film is a good example of, of that. Um, so thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed this topic, I highly suggest you pick up the novel as well. Um, thanks again for listening this week. Uh, this has been the Modernist Revival podcast. Uh, please check back next week when I will be reading D.H. Uh, Lawrence's The Prussian Officer, um, continuing my explorations of homoerotic desire um, and contrasting impulses and expectations surrounding uh, 